The following has been recorded at Cairn University. Any reproduction of this recording without the express permission of the university is prohibited. Well, good morning. Last time I was with you, we talked about that in November. And uh, as a result of that, I had a number of conversations with you. And the offer still remains that if there are things about this topic that you would like to discuss, I would be glad to do so with you. A number of people said that they found what I discussed helpful in answering, we don't want to do that. Um, they found a number of the things that I said helpful in answering some questions, but as is always the case, there are other questions that arise. I hope today that there would be some further answering of questions, but I also expect that after today there will be more questions. And that is good, because that is how learning takes place. Just by way of review, I was dealing with this question of how do I know what God wants me to do, particularly as it relates to this question that sometimes arises in our minds, language that we might use with uh, frequency but not with great thought, how do I find God's will for my life? And I had called this uh, in the subtitle, a brief examination of what the Bible has to say about the will of God and our responsibility. And I had said that I think that when we talk about the will of God, we need to understand that the Bible uses that in two different senses. It uses it in the sense of God's moral will, in terms of his precepts, his commands, the things that we are obliged to know and obey. And it also uses this terminology in other contexts to refer to God's sovereign decree, his will of um, decree, sometimes called the decorative will of God. And I said, that with respect to that sense of the will of God, the Bible does not hold us accountable to know that beforehand, nor does the Bible call us to somehow align ourselves with it. And so what we are responsible to know and to do is what God has revealed with respect to his moral will while trusting all along that his sovereign will is being worked out in our lives. And I said that oftentimes when people are looking for being in the center of God's will, sometimes it's referred to as that, what they're looking for is neither the moral will of God nor the sovereign will of God, but they're looking at a third sense of the will of God that I don't believe actually exists. And as a result of misunderstanding about the will of God and what our responsibility is with respect to it, I mentioned that many times what we end up doing is being paralyzed in terms of making decisions because we are deathly afraid of somehow missing God's will as though we were in a maze and we don't want to go down the wrong path, hit a dead end, and throw off the rest of our life. Or the other sense 
is presumption. Sometimes someone is so convinced this is God's will for me that they do a, a number of things that are not necessarily sound or wise and sometimes find themselves in um, chaos because they think that this is what God certainly told me to do. And should you take any issue with someone who is convinced that this is what God told them to do, you are automatically trumped because God told them to do it. And so this is why I think this topic is so important because it will prevent us from both the paralysis of inactivity as well as the presumption of moving ahead in sometimes foolish directions. And I think it places our emphasis on the right focus, which is knowing and obeying God with respect to what it is that he has revealed. But that does lead to another question. No one asked this question of me, but I think it is a question that often arises when someone hears someone saying what I have said. And the question is this, but didn't Jesus say, my sheep hear my voice? In fact, we heard it read, the sheep hear his voice. And last time I was with you, I showed you a quotation that longer length of one of my um, spiritual heroes, John Newton, who said, the scripture cannot deceive us if rightly understood, but it may, if perverted, distorted, prove the occasion of confirming us in a mistake. So the Bible is trustworthy in all that it affirms, all that it says, it cannot deceive us, but if we distort it, it can, as Newton said, prove the occasion of confirming us in a mistake. The difficulty does not lie in the Bible itself in this case. The difficulty lies in our mishandling of it. And when it comes to this issue of Jesus' words, my sheep hear my voice, there are a number of instances of such mishandling. And I want to show you just some examples of this. What I am going to show you is taken from a book that was very, very popular for uh, quite some time, several years back. It's still available. I'm not going to tell you who the author is. I'm not gonna tell you what the book is because I don't want us to get focused on that. But what I do want us to look at is just some of the ways that this verse is used to, I think, promote a view that is not profitable. The first quotation from this book is, Jesus said, genuine Christians hear his voice and he leads them. The passage is from what was read, John chapter 10, four and five, and then verse 14, which we haven't looked at, and the author goes on to say, those who never hear God speak should examine whether they have been born again. Now, if you heard my talk in November, you remember the situation that I discussed with you about a young woman who was distressed 
in the church that I was serving in Illinois when she was so anguished by the fact that her roommates told her that when they had decisions to make, they prayed and God told them what to do. And she broke down in tears and asked, what is wrong with my relationship with Jesus that I don't hear him? Same author goes on and says, the good news is that those who belong to Christ can discern his voice. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own sheep and they know me. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. Again, a reference to John 10. And then in a chapter later in the book called Questions Often Asked, the author responds to the question about whether people always know when God is speaking to them in the following manner. Jesus said his sheep would know his voice. The Bible's overall testimony is that when God spoke, people knew it was God and they knew what he was saying. I agree with the author that in the Bible, when God spoke, people knew that it was God and they knew what God was saying. But I do disagree with the author with respect to the use of this verse in order to substantiate the idea that we are supposed to be looking for specific directives in terms of making decisions. And this is just representative of a number of popular level Christian works that deal with such things as called listening prayer, learning to hear God's voice, cultivating this ability to discern what God is saying to you and what he would have you to do. And frequently, this passage is employed in the service of that idea. Well, I want us to look at John chapter 10. I want us to look at what Jesus was saying in the overall context. I am going to put passages up on the screen, but I would urge you, if you have your Bible with you, to still use it. Because even with putting it on the screen, it's only framed in so much, and I want you to be able to see what's around what it is that I'm highlighting so that you can pay attention to a larger context even than what I have selected. Some of you have heard me say this, but for those of you who have not been so blessed, a verse a day keeps the context away. <laughs> and if you are using a devotional that has you interacting with a verse a day, stop it. <laughs> Get in the habit of paying attention to holes because sentences don't work in isolation. And so we're going to look at John chapter 10, but before we do that, we're gonna to have to go back a few chapters in John. And for that, we're gonna to go to John chapter six. So if you would turn to John chapter six, Earlier in the chapter, Jesus has performed the wondrous sign of the feeding of the 5,000. People have been following him ever since because he performed this multiplication of loaves and fishes to, to feed this multitude. 
And if we look down at chapter 6, verse 35, we read this. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Prior to this, Jesus tells the, the crowd who are asking him to perform a sign similar to that of Moses who gave them manna from heaven, to perform a sign. And Jesus says, it was not Moses who gave you the manna from heaven, but my father who has given me. I am the bread that has come from heaven. And the reason that I am looking at this passage before we look in John chapter 10 is because I want us to pay attention to something that John does throughout his gospel. And I have made bold some things that I want to draw your attention to. Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And then in verse 39, he says that it is the Father's will that he should not lose any of those that he has been given by the Father, but raise it up on the last day. For John in his gospel, where Paul would refer to the elect, the chosen, John refers to those whom the Father has given to the Son. Notice in verse 37 that Jesus is making a distinction. All that the Father gives me will come to me. There's a future sense. All that he has given me in verse 39. So there is an idea of the Father having given a people to the Son in eternity past. And in this life, those whom the Father has given to the Son will come to Jesus. In other words, they will come to him in faith. They will come to him in trust and repentance. And note the security, the assurance of verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me but raise it up on the last day. Jesus is saying there is no chance that any of those whom the Father has given to him who come to him in faith will be lost. But it is the will of the Father that those who come, he will raise up on the last day. Now, I think that this is important because if we don't understand this theme in John's gospel, we don't really know how to read John chapter 10. And let's look at what was read and we'll look at a little bit beyond it. Starting with verse 1, 
And we will look at verses one through six, and then we're gonna jump down into, later into the, the chapter. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. Jesus draws on imagery that was very familiar to the people of his day. Shepherds and their flocks were so connected that it was nothing unheard of for a flock to recognize and follow the shepherd's voice. And so if you had a number of flocks that were intermingled, all that was necessary was for the shepherd to cry out and his sheep would recognize his voice and follow him. And Jesus uses that imagery. But notice that in verse six, John tells us that he's speaking figuratively. He used this figure of speech, but they didn't understand what he was saying to them. I want you to consider the context. Jesus is not here talking about decision-making. Well, he is talking about one particular decision. He's talking about the decision of salvation. And he says that those who are his sheep will hear his voice and they will follow him. Now, jump down in the chapter to verse 22. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me. There's that language. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. You can't beat security like that. The Father who has given them to me 
is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them from the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now, notice what's going on here. The Jewish leaders are asking Jesus to speak plainly whether or not he is the Messiah. And Jesus says, I have told you. You don't believe. But notice why he says that they don't. Verse 26, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Very interesting, he doesn't say, you are not among my sheep because you do not believe. He says, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. And then he goes into verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. In other words, those whom the Father has given to me, they will recognize my voice in the gospel and they will look up from their grazing and they will come to me. This is not a promise about what home you should buy. This is not a promise about God giving you directives about whom you shall marry. Contextually, this has nothing to do with those kind of issues. And therefore, if I say, well, I faced this decision and Jesus promised that we would hear his voice and I didn't hear anything, therefore, Jesus somehow let me down. No, you misunderstood what he promised. Because if you are in Christ, you have heard his voice. You heard the preaching of the gospel and you recognized him as the good shepherd, the one who lays down his life for the sheep, who gives eternal life to everyone who comes to him in faith, the one who will raise you up on the last day. Oh, there's something so much better than hearing the voice of Jesus telling me what I should buy. And there is that idea of my father who has given them to me again. What is going on here is Jesus saying, there is an assurance that all whom the father has given to him will in time come to Christ in faith. And just a side note, this should give us great, great confidence in evangelism because there are those whom the Father has given to the Son out there. And it's not to our ingenuity, it's not to our innovation, it's the fact that because the Father has given them to the Son, when they hear his voice, they're going to look up and they will come to him and he will not lose them. Well, there's another question. I'm gonna cover this one really, really quickly. It's related, somewhat related to this. And it is this. 
doesn't the Bible talk about being led by the Spirit? You have said that we are not supposed to be looking for these directives and so forth, but what are we to do with what the Bible has to say about being led by the Spirit? And for the sake of time, I will just tell you this. When Paul talks about being led by the Spirit in Galatians 5, and we will look at another place in a, a moment, but let's read this, and then we'll talk about what he means by that. But I say walk by the Spirit. This is verse 16. But I say walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Look at one other place where Paul uses this terminology of being led by the Spirit. Familiar passage, Romans 8, if you want to turn there, starting with verses, verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Prior to this, and you can read above this in Romans 8, Paul has been talking about salvation as this dramatic transition from living in the realm of the flesh to living in the realm of the spirit. And so here in verse 12, he is saying there's, a, there's an implication of that. Salvation is being removed from the domain, the dominion of life solely in the flesh. He doesn't mean flesh and blood. He means living under the governing power of sin, and we've been placed into Christ and in the Spirit. And as a result, he says, so then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Look at verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Verse 14 begins with four. He's drawing a connection there because there is a logical relationship here. What does it mean to be led by the Spirit? Verse 13, put to death the deeds of the body. Being led by the Spirit, both in Galatians 5 and in Romans 8, 
has to do with what older Christians have called mortifying sin. Putting sin to death, cutting the nerves of sin, and cultivating righteousness, the fruit of the Spirit. Woe be unto us if we are praying more about being led by the Spirit to make daily decisions then we are praying to be led by the Spirit in terms of growing in holiness. Because that's what the Bible is talking about. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Several years ago, John Piper shared an experience he had the morning of March 19th. It was the year 2007, and he shared it in an article titled, The Morning I Heard the Voice of God. I want to share select passages with you in the moments that we have left. He said, let me tell you about a most wonderful experience I had early Monday morning, March 19th, 2007, a little after 6 o'clock. God actually spoke to me. The words were in English, but they had about them an absolutely self-authenticating ring of truth. I know beyond the shadow of a doubt that God still speaks today. He says that he had woken up, couldn't get back to sleep. He was decided to go and sit on the couch and began to pray. And he says, as I prayed and mused, suddenly it happened. God said, come and see what I have done. And Piper goes on after elaborating on this, and he said, then he said, as clearly as any words have ever come into my mind, I am awesome in my deeds toward the children of man. My heart leaped up. Yes, Lord, you are awesome in your deeds. Yes, to all men, whether they see it or not. Yes. Now, what will you show me? The words came again. Just as clear as before, but increasingly specific. I turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There they rejoiced in me who rules by my mighty power. And then Piper goes on to explain what this elicited in him. He says, a palpable peace came down. This was a holy moment in a holy corner of the world in northern Minnesota. God Almighty had come down and was giving me the stillness and the openness and the willingness to hear his very voice. As I marveled at his power to dry the sea and the river, he spoke again, I keep watch over the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. And then Piper 
goes on to say what it was that this affected in him. He says, it filled me with a fresh sense of God's reality. It assured me more deeply that he acts in history and our time. And then he says, it has increased my love for the Bible as God's very word because it was through the Bible that I heard those divine words. And through the Bible, I have experiences like this almost every day. The very God of the universe speaks on every page into my mind and your mind. We hear his very words. God himself has multiplied his wondrous deeds and thoughts toward us. None can compare with him. I will proclaim and tell of them yet they are more than can be told. Let me ask you something. When you hear that conclusion, were you disappointed? Were you hoping that perhaps what Piper had experienced was some internal voice of God and maybe he was going to give us the secret as to how we could hear it too? May it never be that we even entertain, though we will never speak the words. All I get is the book. This is the living and active word of God. The Spirit has inspired it and he illumines our minds to receive it and to obey it. May we be kept from craving and searching where we think the action really is in terms of God speaking to me outside of the, the Bible. Because the more we long for that, the more we will depreciate this. Am I saying that God cannot speak today? No. But what I am saying is my responsibility, your responsibility, is to meditate on this, to savor this, to recognize that what we have in this is not simply history, but this is the means by which the living God still speaks and transforms people like us. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you. And we do pray that you would forgive us for the times where we look upon your word with a lightness where we are clamoring after something that we think is more. Father, we thank you for the living word to which your scriptures bear witness, that he is alive, that his spirit dwells within the hearts of all who trust in him. We thank you for delivering us from the domain of darkness and transferring us into the kingdom of your beloved son. 
Father, we are not meaning in any way to place limitations upon you, but we are desirous of living in conformity with what you have said about your very inscripturated word. And so we pray that you would cause our valuing of it to heighten. We pray that our love for it would deepen, our obedience to it would intensify, our joy through it would be manifold. Father, keep us from running after shiny things. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to recognize your voice in Scripture, to prize it, to submit ourselves to it, to be done with the things that would distract us from you in it. Lord, please take the things that we have spent a brief time looking at today and allow us to meditate deeply upon it and glorify you as we seek the depth of your word by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.